So I've been thinking lately about the um, the way that we keep our mind balanced through the pace that we go at and the things that we have in our mind and so forth. And I and that prompted me to find some teachings about that. And I thought I would um, talk today about actually using balance itself as the object of meditation, which was encouraged in some of the teachings of the Buddha. It sounds a little abstract, you know, what does it mean to use balance itself as the object? I use the breath or the body or metta, um, which are also fine objects. But we can understand intuitively what it's like. I mean, if you ride a bicycle, at some level you are aware of the balance. And if it's going in one direction or the other, you correct. So your mind at some level is tracking something called the balance, even though you couldn't say exactly what that is, um, probably in terms of the physical and mental things that come together to balance on a bicycle, say. Um, And it's the same in meditation. The mind goes along, it has a little more energy, it has a little less energy. That's all dependent on physiological things and other emotional factors. And yet there's something called the balance of the mind, and that can be tracked. And it's a good thing to become aware of. There's a lot of compassion in tracking the balance of our mind and going at the right speed and going in a way that keeps the mind relatively balanced. That includes speed, it also includes effort. So that was a little bit the point of the walking meditation instructions, right? To walk at the speed where you can sustain mindfulness. Can we notice how balanced and mindful the mind is and uh, conduct ourselves in a way that nourishes that? So there's a lovely story of a monk named Sona, and he was from a wealthy family, but he gave that up to do the practice. And he was very energetic. He was um, really into the practice. (laughs) And there was a day where he um, walked and walked and walked. He was so into the walking meditation speaking of walking meditation, right, uh, that he, his feet started bleeding, and he got very discouraged by this. You know, he, he couldn't understand how he could be so diligent and so have so much energy, and it just wasn't working, and his feet were bleeding, and he started having thoughts like, well, you know, my family has money. I could just disrobe and go back and just live a virtuous life. I'll be fine, I could enjoy wealth, make merit, that'd be good enough. And the Buddha, with his abilities, heard this and showed up and said, Hey, Sona, were you thinking about disrobing? And he says, Well, yes, I was. And so the, the Buddha gives him an analogy. And he says, Well, when you were a householder, uh, were you skilled at playing the vena, which is a stringed instrument, it's kind of like a harp or a lute? And um, 
Sona says, well, yes. And the Buddha says, well, when the strings of your vena were, were very taut, they were too tight, uh, was the vena harmonious and easy to play? And he says, no. He says, well, what about when the strings were very loose? Was it harmonious and easy, easy to play? And Sona says, no. And so then he says, well, what about when the strings were tuned just right, with just the right amount of tension? And so he says, well, yes, of course, then that's when you play it. And so that was all a setup for the analogy to say, well, Sona, um, it's the same way with the mind. You know, if you have an unbalanced amount of energy, in his case, too much, um, it doesn't work. You know, it just the practice doesn't really work. But similarly, if you're too lax and sort of not really wholeheartedly practicing, it doesn't work that well either. So he, um, the last line of the teaching is kind of key. He says, apply yourself with balanced energy, uh, understand or achieve a balance of the faculties, and take that as your theme. And so what does that refer to? In my opinion, um, the word that refers to the balance. So have balanced energy, have a balanced mind, basically, and then take that as the theme of your meditation. So he encourages him to actually pay attention to the balance and have that be his object of meditation as he goes around his day. And as these things go, um, Sona, that worked, and Sona became liberated. So this is a valid object when we're sitting, is to watch the whether the mind is balanced. Um, but there are other, other things, other ways to use balance as the object. For example, uh, you can use um, the body. You can use the tension and relaxation in the body um, as, a, as an object. I did this actually in my practice for a while. Um, somewhat on the cushion and also in daily life, because I was very tense when I started practicing. And so I um, noticed, okay, where is the tension in my body and can I relax that? That was very helpful, because I was seeing a place that was off balance and bringing it toward balance. But interestingly, in doing that, I discovered, not unlike Sona with the instrument, right, is that it's also possible for the body to be have some parts that are that are too relaxed in a sense. Um, they're almost they're weak because they don't have energy sustaining them. And this is typical is that our body has some unbalances. If you've done something like yoga or qigong, you discover the ways in which the body has been compensating. Some parts are a little bit weak, and so other parts get um, tense, kind of. Um, correcting for those weaknesses. And so there's this process of bringing energy to the parts that are a little bit depleted and um, relaxing the parts that have tightened up and finding that harmonious, supple, resilient balance. And this can be done even just sitting on the cushion. You're sitting perfectly still. You're not doing yoga or qigong. Uh, So I was just using that as an analogy. But it's possible uh, to learn to have, for example, the relaxed, upright posture, right, that we talk about at the beginning. That's not just a sort of a formulaic thing that teachers say when to get your attention and get you settled in. It's actually a practice to learn to develop a posture that is upright and also relaxed. 
That's what allows you to sit for a long time. Too tense, you get tired or sore. But too relaxed, you also get sore. The back is not held straight. Those vertebrae are going to hurt. But if the back is held rigid, they will also hurt. So there's this um, balance, and it comes from the, uh, the offering that I usually make in the initial instructions, which is to soften the body. So but the parts of the body that are tense, if we just ease off a little bit and soften them, it's like tuning those strings of the instrument. <coughs> and this can go very deep. It's not actually just a sort of a preliminary thing. Okay, let's get the body pretty much in shape, and then we can really meditate. Uh, if you go very deeply into totally balancing the body, you'll end up having to look at the mind also. Um, and that's... I mean, to completely relax any act of tension is pointing straight at liberation, right? Craving and clinging are the cause of suffering. What do you think those are? Tension. Tension in the mind and body are manifested as craving and clinging, which is the cause of suffering. So if we could relax that completely, the mind would fall away from suffering. So, as we start, we can go all the way to the end with balancing. There's also a lovely sutta um, that has an analogy. I'm into the images tonight. Uh, it has the image of a goldsmith refining gold. And so, you imagine, you know, this goldsmith working with the fire and the melted gold, trying to purify it. And it says that a skilled goldsmith will know that sometimes it's important to um, blow on the fire and kind of ramp it up so that the gold is going to melt more. And other times to sprinkle water because it's gotten too hot. And so they sprinkle water over it, you know, cool it off. And other times it says to just examine it closely. So that's maybe when it looks like it's pretty balanced, but you can't just slack off and say, okay, now I've set it and forget it. Uh, when you're refining gold, there's a need to keep watching it and make sure you know it's not falling out of balance. And so after that analogy of the goldsmith, the Buddha says, and it's like this in the mind. If we want the mind to be attuned toward liberation, then we need to do three things. We need to attend to concentration, to uplifted energy, so concentration is a gathering and a stilling of the mind, to uplifted energy, so energizing the mind a little bit, and to looking on with equanimity. So that's again, okay, mind seems pretty balanced, but it's not just set it and forget it, but we'll have equanimity and just allow the mind to be as it is, and then if it starts changing, which it might, um, then we can either apply concentration or uplifted energy and it's this three-way balance. And then just to give one more example, um, there's a, an understanding that we need to balance what are called the awakening factors. There are seven awakening factors. We won't go through them all in detail, but just to summarize, they're, they're divided into three sets. And one set of three is the calming factors. One set of three is the energizing factors, and then the remaining one is mindfulness. And it's said that mindfulness watches over the other awakening factors and checks that they stay in balance. It's interesting, right, that the mind 
uh, needs to develop these seven awakening factors. They come, they become very strong when the mind is about to have an insight, and um, but half of them are calming and half of them are energizing. So we're going to get the mind into a state where it's simultaneously very calm and very bright, very energized. And that is, you may have felt that sometimes in practice, um, not so different from a posture that's upright and also relaxed, right? And so there's always this sense that the mind is balanced and we can sort of walk it up um, so that it has a lot of calm and a lot of brightness and energy and awareness. Um, and when it gets really vibrant and really powerful, that that's a very skillful uh, what beneficial mind that's gonna gonna be able to see how things are. So it's not necessarily that we're just stilling the mind and not that we're just being really, really mindful. <coughs> there's always this sense that there's a bunch of stuff going on and we're gonna tune an ecosystem to be in balance. And so my suggestion for this evening is that the balance itself can be the object of meditation once the kind of, you know, the, the really far out <laughs> movements of the mind have been calmed and it's kind of gotten into some middle position, we can start using the balance itself as our object. So what does that look like? I mean, in sitting practice, um, using the balance as an object, in my experience, it could feel like Um, seeking tension and releasing it, like I described, both in the body and the mind. So we we watch, is there any tension? How can I let that go? And then we wait, oh, there's some more tension, go over to that, examine it, do some, you know, use some kind of a technique or else just observe it carefully, let it disband. Um, that, That process can go on and on and on and it will refine the mind. So that's one way. Or sometimes it can be a very close practice where attending to the balance is is something like attending to the balance of a bobsled. You know, it's the mind is going very quickly um, and it's very tight around a balance point and we're just making tiny little adjustments and letting it go. So maybe like surfing, maybe that's a better analogy for Santa Cruz. So surfing or bobsledding, <laughs> your choice, um, could be like that also. And then this works in daily life, too. Um, A suggestion for what it might look like in daily life is that uh, we could could develop what I've heard called a situation-centric view. So often when we go into a situation, we enter a room or something that we're doing, we have what's called a self-centric stance. You know, we come in and we say, Okay, what is it that I want out of this conversation? And how am I going to stay on track and get that? Or what is it that's going to be threatening to me? And how can I avoid that? How can I make sure this certain thing doesn't happen? Or, you know, whatever. But it generally, it's kind of about me and what I'm going to do or not do or get or avoid. Um, and a situation-centric view um, still includes us. It's not an other-centric view. Um, it's, but it includes what's the whole situation here and how can this stay in balance? How can I contribute to this going as well as it could? And I'm part of that, so I'm not giving up. You know, I'm not going to let myself be intimidated. And I'm not going to give up um, 
any sense of participation, but um, it's not only about me. There's a whole situation here that I'm going to do my best to be with. So that's, um, that's like using the balance in an external way, in a daily life situation. So these are my thoughts on balance itself as an object of meditation. And if you're interested, if that sounded intriguing, you might just give it a try in your next sit or your next situation, sit or situation like that, um, and see what it's like to attend to the balance and how that might um, be a vehicle for peace and compassion and ease and freedom. Well, maybe I'll stop there and ask if there are any comments or questions on that. Um, you mentioned the calming factors and the energizing factors. Mm. Which are those? Mm. Is it three and three? And yeah. Oh. oh, I love it. Yay, <coughs> I like lists. So the... Um, <laughs> There's mindfulness, and then the energizing factors are uh, investigation, energy, and joy. And then the calming factors are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And those seven together are the factors of awakening. So when we practice these different objects that we can use, and I'm wondering if it's better, more beneficial, Pick one object and just always use that. Are we going to make more progress that way than we would jumping from object to object? Mm, it's a good question. Um, I think I want to not go for either extreme <laughs> um, and instead kind of talk to the point that you're making, which is um, that you're try to try to gather it up. So if the mind is moving around to a lot of different objects, and I'll, I'll sort of give my interpretation of what that means. It's like, you know, I sit down and I say, okay, I'm going to use the breath. And after five minutes I say, you know, the breath isn't that interesting to me today. I think I'm going to try um, instead my body sensations. And I do that for eight minutes. And then, I mean, not no. during one session. Oh, okay. And then I would say meta. Every, every session. Every session, you would stick with one, but you change it from session to session, is what you're talking about. No, I'm talking about never changing it. Okay. I was going for the case of, of having multiple objects. But yeah, it is possible. Like, I mean, uh, go ahead. Are you more likely to make some kind of progress if you pick one object and use that in every session that you do than if you? Do one session using the breath, another session, you know, mm-hmm. for sh- sort of Okay, so session by session. Okay. Mean, right? Yeah. Oh, I had this on mute. Is it better now? <laughs> okay. It's different. It's different. Change is good. Um, so what I'll say to that is that there's a, a nice saying that um, if you dig 50 holes one foot deep, you won't strike water, but if you dig one hole 50 feet deep, you might. And so, in general, your intuition that it's good to stay with something for a while, I think, is helpful. Um, but I, I guess I want to, well, the reason I said I want to avoid extremes is I, I wouldn't want to tell somebody you can only just do this one thing forever, because it, sometimes it's not the right object 
for a person. And mm-hmm. I knew I was just on retreat with a teacher who was has a very angry personality, and so he was told to do metta practice. And he wanted to. He wanted to stop the anger. Um, but he used all those. Um, he used the, the people form of metta, which is taught in the commentaries, for two years, and his anger didn't diminish. And he thought he was doing it wrong. He thought he was a total failure. And then he changed to just another type of metta practice. He changed to radiation practice, which doesn't have any people. You just imagine that you're radiating metta, uh, like a lamp. And very quickly, it started working for him. So, um, Was that a, his teacher's suggestion? Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, actually, he, he decided to change. He oh. went and read the text himself and, and realized, oh, there's this other way of doing it. I'm going to try that. Um, and then maybe the flip side is um, my father has done transcendental meditation for about 45 years, and but he never really got into the whole community thing and the check-in thing and going on retreats. He just he just got his mantra and just started practicing at home, and um, consequently he never changed his mantra or any object or anything. He's been doing the same object for 45 years, and it has been very fruitful for him. Um, yeah, and his practice evolved. You know, it wasn't like he just was repeating that phrase. Nobody could do that for that long. So it really depends on the person. Yeah. But I would encourage your your intuition of sticking with something is good. All right, well, why don't we sit for a few minutes more?